0: Hello folks. Yay! We are now live on all platforms. Welcome to another weekly live stream with yours truly, Dr. Sarah L. Webb. I am the founder of Colorism Healing and my mission is to raise awareness, shift attitudes, and take action to dismantle colorism around the globe. And I do this in part by speaking and training for businesses and companies that are ready to advance their DEI missions. And this week I'm really excited because we're wrapping up a three-part historical look at the legacies of colorism and we're looking at the quote-unquote post-colonial period. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second but do remember that I like interactive lives so feel free to drop your questions and comments in the chat. Say hello, let me know where you're tuning in from, let me know where the weather is like what you where you are. And keep in mind that this is part of an ongoing live series based on my ebook, Corporate Colorism, Why Business Leaders Must Upgrade Their Anti-Racist Strategies. So you can purchase the ebook or you can download the PDF for free until March 31st, okay? I think links are in the description box. If not, I'll put them in there after the live stream. If you're watching on YouTube or LinkedIn. And if you're watching on Instagram, then you should just go subscribe to my YouTube channel. All right. So, full transparency. um, On Instagram, you can't see the title that I called this, but in the um, when I was publishing and scheduling this live stream to take place, I titled it "Blue Veins and Brown Bags: Post-Colonial Histories of Colorism." So, blue blue veins and brown bags. And I almost titled it because I like puns. I like to do plays on words. I almost titled it "A Brown Bag." on brown bags okay i know this is very corny (laughs) but it's who i am all right um so you know how they have those like brown bags talk series and things like that so i was like oh i could do a brown bag on the brown paper bag test but anyway thinking about the past two weeks we started off with the colonial period where you know european countries were Creating wreaking havoc around the havoc around the world and um, enslaving people and that sort of thing and so a lot of times when we talk about the history of colorism that is the historical period we focus on the most so I started there and then I went backwards to the pre-colonial period where I talked about how colorism did exist in a lot of places around the world in many places around the world there was skin tone stratification of various sorts a lot of it related to class differences. Um, ruling class versus working class, etc. And then today we're talking about, so the post-colonial period. And I'm really going to focus on the United States and I'm really going to focus on the period after slavery, right? So for some context. Now the phrase post-colonial is just a phrase. I also mentioned last week that really colonialism never ended. There is no post-colonial. But typically people who study that period of history say that it started in the 1940s when a lot of countries around the globe were gaining their independence from European colonizers, right? Hence, post-colonial, right? So they became their own sovereign nations. And now a lot of that started to take place, and there was a wave of countries that were starting to fight for their independence and gain their independence starting in the 1940s, 1950s, that, that, that time period. And I think it's really interesting because there are people alive today who were born in the 40s and 50s, right? So it might have been easy to kind of dismiss the histories of pre-colonial and colonial periods. But when we talk about the histories of colorism, now we're in that part of history where some of you watching were born during that period. Some of you, your parents, I know my parents were my aunts, you know, um, uncles. And then some of you, maybe it's your grandparents. There's a range of ages that I think watch my content. And so we have um live living history right around us when we start talking about this period and just in case any academics are watching this live stream is not at all based in post-colonial theory okay i'm just using that as like a frame of reference for the time period that i'm talking about Um, but the title blue veins and brown bags comes from a lot of the practices and things that were happening particularly in countries like the united states context though i'm going to step step back just a little bit and talk about the context for blue vein societies and brown paper bag tests so during slavery the children of white colonial white colonists white male colonists and black women enslaved black women were aka mixed race And they were more likely to be manumitted or to gain their freedom. They were more likely to be given education and they were more likely to be able to learn a trade or to be taught a trade. And so these advantages that existed during slavery um, created a large community. Well, large relative to what, right? But a growing community of free people of color are freed black people who were largely, and not entirely, but largely mixed race and lighter skinned. And so that was happening during slavery, right? You did have some black people who were free, who were able to own land or have, do work for pay. And so that privilege sort of compounded for generations after slavery and so there's a period right after slavery and just before Jim Crow called Reconstruction. Reconstruction was like a little slice of the historical timeline that came after slavery and came just before Jim Crow. And a lot of story. I'm not a historian, by the way, so just full transparency, I'm not up here trying to act like a historian. I am just reporting back to you the history that I have studied and read and heard over the many years. Um... But a lot of the historians say that Jim Crow segregation and the really uh, was backlash and was a result of the progress that black people were starting to make during the period of Reconstruction. So historians have noted that right after slavery, during Reconstruction, a lot of black Americans were being elected into office, were seeing quote unquote progress, were getting wins, were advancing their cause. But what we also know is that those Black Americans who were seeing that progress were overwhelmingly mixed race and lighter skinned. I apologize, Instagram. (laughs) I didn't charge my phone, so my battery's at 20%. I'm going to try to get through this so I don't cut off on (laughs) y'all. But yeah, so during Reconstruction, you know, we talk about how there seemed to be hope and progress and advancement for black Americans. But we have to acknowledge that that was primarily and largely lighter skinned black Americans, mixed race um, individuals. And so then Jim Crow comes along because, you know, white folks were like, oh, let people free and leave them alone and they actually can thrive. (laughs) So they're like, we can't have that, so let's, you know, insert other laws and other practices. The rise of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, all these types of things came to try to suppress and further subjugate and further oppress Black people after slavery, right? But again, these these Black Americans, again, largely the descendants of mixed ancestry, um, because they had been set up prior to and generations previously in terms of more access to education, more access to being able to earn a trade, more likely to have come from free families, etc. It was them who were seeing that progress. And so this, this generational privilege, right, this generational advantage has compounded and still persists in many ways today. Um, the... what happened though is that these communities of light-skinned people started to intentionally associate themselves with each other. And they started to intentionally try to move up the social ladder. They started to intentionally try to gain status, right? They're like, okay, you know, now we're getting more freedoms. We are seeing more acceptance into universities, more acceptance into the workforce, all these different things. And so they were eager to assimilate, they were eager to advance their cause. But they did so at the expense and to the exclusion of darker skinned and non-mixed African Americans or black Americans. And part of the societies that they created included not just social networks, but actual social organizations, social clubs, social institutions, schools, even at the university level, fraternities and sororities, churches, um, neighborhoods, right, events. There's an entire culture, like entire well-resourced communities of primarily mixed race and lighter skinned black Americans. And so they intentionally started to carve out their own lane, like a middle class of people that was not black, not like other dark-skinned black Americans or Negroes, right, to use language from that time period. But they they weren't white, they weren't at the status of white people in society, but they were able to carve out their own lane somewhere in the middle of that, right? And part of that effort, part of that intentional class, social class building included things like blue vein societies So the Blue Vein Society is just one of many institutions, organizations, social phenomena that happened in terms of the realm of what I'm talking about. And so a Blue Vein Society is reported to be a group of people where your skin had to be light enough for the blue veins underneath your skin to be visible. The veins that were blue had to be visible in order for you to be seen as Uh, an appropriate member of their community and they also used the brown paper bag test and that meant that your complexion had to be lighter than a brown paper bag in order to become a member of their organization or their club or their church what to attend their event whatever it was right Um, and a similar test that wasn't based on complexion but that was an early version of texturism was the comb test. And I talked about the comb test before as well, where they had to be able to pass a fine tooth comb through your kitchen, through the back of your hair without it getting caught, right? In order to determine the appropriateness of your entrance into their societies and communities. And so there's been some debate about how widespread these practices and these so-called tests were, right? There are people who even say, oh, it's all, you know, anecdotal evidence or there's no, um, what's the words, empirical data, that sort of thing. But what we see is that whether there was an actual or literal paper bag test bag present, that the ideology still manifested, that the mindset, the mentality was still there and it was evident in the makeup of these communities it was evident in the makeup of these organizations and these societies they even had their own marriage market right in order to again hoard and reserve more status more capital for themselves for their families for their descendants right so they were very particular about who they let their children marry or, or associate with right and the the reality is that even now that mentality still exists you might not have a literal blue vein society but you still have people that are black people black americans who are exclusionary classes colorists towards other black americans right and so that practice did not vanish overnight because people say oh is that still happening does that still happen is that just a thing of the past So that's why i go back to my comment about the fact that people who were doing that a lot of them are still alive right or a lot of them are the children of people who were leaders in those efforts in those initiatives and so we can't expect that that would just vanish and disappear into thin air without proactive accountability proactive reparations proactive reconciliation right and so just because we've ignored it just because we have not acknowledged it to a degree that I think we should, um, doesn't mean that it's just going to somehow dissipate or disintegrate on its own. Um, let's see. Oh, this is another important thing from my notes is that there were exceptions made that sometimes you would see a darker skinned or a more brown skinned person who was not of mixed ancestry, moving through these communities, being accepted or embraced, embraced into these groups and organizations. And so exceptions were made based on wealth. So again, this is an intersectional issue as all issues are. Um, if you were darker skinned, but you were able to save money or earn money and grow your wealth, then a lot of times people were willing to associate with you or have you be a part of their community. But again, the goal is social capital. The goal is how can we increase our social status? And there was a, a book by Matthew Knowles. So I don't know the man, right? Regardless of what you think of him or his family. He, his first person narrative is that he was only allowed into his university, his black university, because he was an athlete, right? So he's a dark-skinned person. And he talked about how most of the students at his HBCU were fair skinned. And he said he was allowed in because he played sports. He played basketball, right? And so that's very similar to what we see a lot of white schools do with their athletes, right? We don't necessarily have a diverse student body, but the students, the black students that we do have, we recruit them specifically to boost or build up our athletic programs, right? I saw that a lot, even in high schools back in my hometown in Baton Rouge. So I'm saying all this to say, I'm gonna get to your questions. I see some comments going through, coming through right now. So I'm gonna transition to the phase of my live stream where I answer questions or respond to comments. So I'm saying all this and it goes back to the importance of recognizing this and acknowledging this is it goes back to my comment about the feigned innocence that some, many, <laughs> light-skinned people have or assert as if they are, are light-skinned people collectively are innocent, unassuming bystanders who just can't fathom how or why this colorism thing exists, right? And how, you know, a lot of them, and maybe because the people who, the light-skinned people who follow me might sincerely feel this way, but, the reality is that this blue vein society, the paperback test, the whole, you know, let's create a separate middle class just for us, wealthy, elite, some might say bourgeoisie, uh, black people who were disproportionately of mixed ancestry and light skinned. A lot of that is intentional. And it's not um, just, oh, we're so sad that these white people see us as more approachable. And we're so sad that white people think we're more intelligent than our darker skinned people. Like, no, these entire communities of light skinned people were actively leveraging that colorism. They were actively leveraging anti-blackness for their own benefit so that they could gain more capital, so so that they could assimilate or gain more social status, right? Okay, so let's look at questions now. We have plenty of time for that before I close out. I'm going to start with Instagram, just in case my battery dies on y'all. I want to try to get to some of your comments. (laughs) My phone battery, I'm on two screens. Oh, wow, 13 people on LinkedIn and YouTube. That's a big crowd. Okay. Um, Good hair, good body says all of Central and South America, including the Caribbean, has skin color stratification. The whole world has skin color stratification. (laughs) I think that sums it up, right? Just the entire planet has colorism. Um, I heard that test still goes on in Brazil. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised. But as I was saying, like, you don't have to pull out a literal paper bag to still effectively be doing the same thing. Right? Like, that's what colorism is. It's the brown paper bag mentality. Whether a physical, literal paper bag is ever present or not doesn't actually matter. It doesn't actually matter if um, you use a literal comb for the comb test. The point is, you're making that choice about who's accepted, who's going to have access, who's going to gain entrance into this opportunity, this space, based on their hair texture, based on their skin tone. Um, okay, I'm going really fast to this, so I might not see all, the, see all of the comments. I'm trying to focus on questions. Um, says Mark, my key says... Given the history of how light-skinned or mixed-race people were in the past, as you outlined it, how do you feel about the opposite today who seem to align with dark-skinned, non-mixed people and tend to be loud and vocal today? That's a good question. So a couple of things. One, the, we talk about how the civil rights movement, a lot of civil rights leaders were also of mixed ancestry. And lighter-skinned, right? W.E.B. Du Bois, Angela Davis, the Kathleen Cleavers, um, Malcolm X, right? And so, one, in the fight for racial justice, in the fight for racial equality, because the reality is that even though they were trying to carve out this separate middle class for themselves and throwing dark-skinned people under the bus to do so, they were still facing racism, like they were still barred from a lot of opportunities. And so for some, it behooved them to unite with all black people to end Jim Crow, right? As long as Jim Crow existed, um, they were still limited in, to, in terms of how much they could assimilate, right? Or gain access to spaces and to things. And so a lot of light-skinned people saw the benefit of fighting for racial justice and racial equality, right? And that's why I don't prioritize fighting racism over colorism. Because what I, I think, I can't remember where I posted this, but you know when we focus on racism, then we are creating an opportunity for another, a different cohort of light-skinned people to rise to power, right? Um, but also I think there are light-skinned people who exist in the world who understand what colorism is and who understand that they're privileged by it, right? And who don't consciously subscribe to it. And I say consciously because we can all still have conditioning and implicit biases and implicit conditioning, but there are light-skinned people today who um, understand colorism and who are actively trying to respond to it in their way, right? Okay, so a a few things could be going on with that. Let's see the honey effect. Any positive trait is is associated with whiteness, lightness, white superiority, money desirability, intellect, etc. So it seems as though it's an attempt to re- retroactively make amends for things in the past that they have that have already occurred, but not necessarily engaging with the compounded privilege that manifests today. Yeah, Mark My Keys, yes, that's true. So sometimes it, it's still a selfish motive in terms of if we join together to fight racism and conveniently kind of like ignore colorism then i mean i'm in an even better position right but also what you're saying is there are some people who again understand their privilege understand their historical privilege and are trying to respond to that in their way but i like that you use the word compounded privilege because someone mentioned this and i'm going my explanation is longer than I planned it to be. I'm coming to y'all, LinkedIn and YouTube, okay? So if you have a question, hold tight. I'm coming to y'all. Um, I was giving a presentation and I used Kamala Harris as an example of light skin privilege. Regardless of you know what category or racial category she uses or that you might use for her, for her, she has light skin privilege, right? Um, and so someone said, oh, well, it's not light-skinned privilege because she wasn't running against any dark-skinned women. She wasn't running against dark-skinned women, so she wasn't chosen above dark- a dark-skinned candidate, right? But what I, my explanation was that, well, privilege is not just about that individual instance. It's her entire lifetime of having greater access that put her in that position in the first place, that allowed her to enter the room, to even be considered for the vice presidency, was an accumulation of privileged moments, of advantages, of benefits that she has gotten accumulated over the span of her whole lifetime, right? So even just looking at one person and the compounding effect of their privilege over their lifetime, much less the compounding impact of privilege across generations, right? I'm gonna have to make that a a, a real I'm going to clip that out. (laughs) Um, Okay, let me take a break. Oh, thank you, Clavicito. Oh, thank you for the badge on Instagram. Yay. I'm going to switch over. Um, Yeah, so Stacey Abrams. I was going to say that too. I didn't include that in my response during the presentation, but I was was also thinking, I was like, but actually she was chosen over dark-skinned people who were highly qualified, right? Okay, YouTube and LinkedIn. Let me see what y'all are talking about. I have not... Giving y'all as much love, but I'm here. I see you. Hi, Michael. Hi, Aya, Jupiter, Jamila, um, Noana. Hi, Dr. Webb here at Fort Hood on this cloudy, but nice day. Welcome Fort Hood. Um, says when this person is on YouTube, says Patty Ama. when mixed race are light skinned, they didn't have advantages. I'm curious to know why you have that perspective because it definitely contradicts my perspective. And I think people who are watching already understand where I fall on that. Um, Let's see, questions though. This is why I do not ride with W.E.B. Du Bois. That's a hard no, he was extremely elitist with that talented 10th mess. This is Aya on LinkedIn. Jupiter says, not me looking all over to see if my veins show. Wow, I knew the bag, didn't know the vein thing or the comb test. This is wild. Yes. And dehumanizing. Yes, it was definitely dehumanizing. Um, Oh, no. Connectivity issues. I don't know if it's YouTube or LinkedIn that's having connectivity issues. All right. Jamila Simmons says, as a daughter of a darker skin tone father, I have witnessed discriminatory practices firsthand. Let's address the issue and make change. Uh, LinkedIn user, do we have any testimonials of advocates or whatever they may be called at that time? Trying to avoid those dehumanizing practices. Thanks. I don't currently have any testimonials, but that is a very interesting thing to look into, LinkedIn user. Um... All right. Aya says, we could all go far if we would just acknowledge that people feel justified in treating people who fall into this category based on their looks poorly. They feel like people who look like this deserve degradation and subjugation. It's sick. All right. I'm at 10% on my phone. So I'm gonna have to wrap up so that my YouTube, my Instagram folks don't get cut off suddenly. Uh, all right, I think most of these are just comments, which on LinkedIn and YouTube will be saved to the live stream. So I can't get to all your comments today um, or questions, but hopefully um, you all will be back. And maybe I'll try to shorten my talk at the beginning to make m- more room for questions at the end if you all would like that. But thank you all so much for participating. Thank you again, Clavisito, for the badge. And I will see y'all next week. Next week's topic. Oh, I forgot your homework and your affirmations. Let me quickly do that. I have a couple of minutes left. Your homework, since we're, we've been talking about the history of colorism in this week's time period, there are still a lot of people alive from this time period. So I want you for your homework to talk to someone from a different generation than you about colorism. That could be an older generation or a younger generation, right? But try to find someone from a different generation than you and ask them what their observations were, what their experiences of colorism, what it was like to live in their skin tone during that time period, right? Just have a conversation. Um, you don't have to go into it thinking you're gonna teach them anything or that, you you, you know, just be open. And then your affirmation is, I take responsibility for my legacy. I choose to be remembered as someone who stood for justice. We talk about, you know, what side of history are you going to be on? If they were to write the history books and you are, if a photo is leaked 30 years from now, a photo is leaked of you, where will you be standing on the side of the picket line, right? Um, And then next week I will be talking about, again, based on the corporate colorism PDF slash ebook, I'm talking about, the intersections of colorism. I am really excited, this is one of my favorite things to talk and teach about, is the intersectional dynamics of colorism. We're not gonna be able to look at all the possible intersections, but we're gonna look at some of the most prominent ones, such as gender, and just kind of unpack how all of that relates to colorism and how it impacts it. So. I'm going to be hyped for that one. Y'all don't want to miss that one. It's going to be a good one. If there's a particular intersection you'd like me to touch on, again, we're not doing a deep dive into each individual intersection, but just looking at different um, ones that tend to more most uh, significantly impact people's experiences of their skin tone. If there's a particular one you'd like me to touch on, though, let me know in the comments or DMs, as you all like to do. And I'll see y'all next week. All right. Enjoy the rest of your week, y'all. I'm glad that you start your weeks off every Monday right here with me having this very important conversation on colorism. And y'all know I always have a hard time saying goodbye, so I'm gonna just cut it off right now. (laughs) Love (laughs) y'all.